summer is very special to us in North America. It's the time when we really come alive. We go to the beach, we go on vacation, the kids are out of school. It's a glorious time. But we also love the fact that when we come indoors, we have air conditioning. So if we're in a very hot place, it doesn't matter. Indeed, air conditioning is so very important to us and important to summer. So it is rather frightening and disillusioning to realize that not only may we not have enough air conditioning uh, this summer, but we may not have enough electricity because air conditioning is of course driven by electricity. And the prognosis for the summer is there will be blackouts and brownouts. And we're here today with three experts to look at that possibility and to examine what might occur and what might be an ugly impediment to your glorious summer. The experts are Peter Londa, president of Tantalus Systems, a company that helps utilities, especially small ones, deal with the challenges of today. Daniel Brooks, vice president of integrated grid and energy systems at the Electric Power Research Institute, and Rod Cookrow, contributing editor at Energy Policy News. Rod Cookrow, what is the prognosis for this summer for electric supply? Well, the, uh, the forecasts have been issued so far by both the uh, North American Electric Reliability Council and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission are rather grim. Uh, and I only say that because uh, there's a confluence of factors that could affect energy supply across the majority of the United States, uh, uh, 48 states. Uh, those are a weak hydro production in the West, uh, continued drought in the Southwest, uh, a decrease in the output of thermal power plants, so coal and nuclear plants in the Southwest power pool, but uh, in a major shortfall in capacity in the mid-continent independent system operator. In fact, what NERC says about uh, MISO is that they have a higher risk of having severe disruptions this summer. Now, of course, all these forecasts are based on the factors regarding mother nature. Uh, she is the wild card here. If we have the same degree of wildfires, hurricanes, um, uh, flooding that might occur, then shortfalls are more likely to occur. You know, that can be escaped if, uh, if, if things uh, don't turn south. However, I will mention that only last week, the, uh, the federal government put out their for forecast for the hurricane season, and it's going to be an above average hurricane season with six to 10 hurricanes, three to six of them are going to be major storms. So they could affect obviously the Southeast and the Gulf Coast. That's awesome. Daniel, uh, how does the Electric Power Research Institute see the summer and are there technical fixes or what will happen technically to alleviate some of the stress? Yeah, so, so certainly been following the, the reports from NERC and FERC and, and see those risks. And we've been coordinating with utilities and system operators uh, over the last several years, looking at you know, how do we actually manage the risk as climate change and extreme weather seems to be more severe, more frequent. Uh, at the same time that we're going through a significant transition in terms of the energy mix and, and difference in resources and uh, the way those resources behave under certain conditions. And so um, what's the fix in the short term? Obviously, the, the longer time frame you have for being able to try to mitigate those options, uh, those potential risks, 
uh, the more options you have available. In the short term, uh, you know, looking at for this summer, based on the, the reports that have come out just in the last month or two, there's not a lot of options that you have available. Uh, you know, obviously scheduling maintenance and coordinating maintenance on existing units to try to make sure that they're available during the, uh, the high risk periods, deferring any retirements, if there are any that can be deferred past the summer high risk period, obviously something you want to do and, and communicating early and often with uh, customers to make sure that they understand the risk and that they're ready to provide conservation uh, actions if and when those are needed. But for, for the most part, when you get to just a month or two out, most of your, your cards are already played. And as Rod said, you're really uh, at, the, um, at the, the mercy of mother nature. And, and what do we see in terms of extreme temperatures? And, and that's really gonna be the, the driver that determines what the summer looks like. Do we have prolonged periods of extreme heat across broad geographic regions uh, in the Midwest and, and in the West? And if we do, it could be rough. Uh, Peter Londa, your company and you as the head of it have your fingers on an extraordinary number of uh, small and medium-sized utilities, what I call the yeoman of the utility industry. Uh, how are they dealing? How are they preparing for this summer? And is there a lot of apprehension? Um, well, Llewellyn, what, what we're witnessing is, is for the utilities that have deployed our technology, the way in which they're preparing for both the disruptions on um, the supply of energy that they access, but also for mother nature is, is really by commanding data through our efforts to help them digitize their grid. And what I mean by that is, is really having connectivity and then command and control of every device from a substation through the power lines to pull top transformers and then from pull top transformers down to meters. Um, and, and the more data that we can access and the more granular control we can provide to utilities at the very edge of the grid, the better off they will be under all circumstances, whether that's um, curtailments of load that surface places like California where they shut the grid down because of fire risk, um, or in the event of just imbalances between supply and demand that, that unfortunately continue to unfold across the United States. Uh, Daniel, how is it we came to this point? Uh, why is this summer looking so particularly grave? Where summer has been coming for uh, all of time. Uh, this should not be a surprise. Yeah, well, and, and if you look at um, NERC's long-term reliability assessment. NERC is the, is the uh, reliability organization that watches reliability, right? Uh, they, they do a long-term assessment, reliability assessment, looks out 10 years. And if you've been watching over the last several years of their long-term reliability assessment, they've been pointing out how, you know, extreme weather uh, coupled with transitions and resource mix could present problems as we go forward. So it's not like this has just come out of, of nowhere. Uh, we've known that there's been the potential risk that, that exists. Um, you know, and, and what I would say, Llewellyn, is this, our processes that we use from a planning perspective, we call it resource adequacy, but those resource adequacy processes really weren't designed for the changing climate and extreme weather that we're seeing today in confluence with the changing resource mix that, that we have as well as we move towards a decarbonized uh, economy. And so those resource adequacy processes are the processes that 
illuminate and identify where those risks are. And those processes have to change. And that's something that we're working on significantly with uh, utilities and other electric system stakeholders across the U.S. and, and globally. Um, Ron, to be a little specific, what cities or regions do you expect to have trouble in? Uh, where should homeowners and householders worry about uh, what's going to happen in the summer? Well, let me put it this way. I think the safest places to be if you want to make sure that you have electricity when you flip that switch is probably the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic states. Uh, I mentioned before the heightened risk of the hurricane season that will put Florida and the Gulf Coast states and Texas at risk. Texas, of course, as we know, is an isolated grid of its own, and it's already having problems even in the moderate months of, of April and May this year. They, they, they asked their consumers to turn up the thermostats to 78 degrees. Uh, I mean, Texas sounded like Jimmy Carter, if you remember what Carter asked the, the nation to do at times of energy crisis. But uh, it's the West. It's, it's, it's the Midwest and it's the West. So it's, it's really every place uh, west of the Mississippi River, including some of the northern tier states that are east of the Mississippi, such as Michigan, Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, uh, so it's a very large part of the country. And I mean, Daniel put his finger on it when he said, it's all gonna be dependent upon the extent to which you have major uh, long, long lasting uh, climate events. That could be a heat wave as occurred in the West several years ago. That could be a combination of heat waves and wildfires that, that force utilities to take down a certain part of the grid to protect it or to protect the, uh, the property and lives that are nearby those, those, those transmission lines. So there are, those are the risks. Now, I just want to say there are some bright spots here. In 2019, 2020, and 2021, the utilities across the country, and that includes the utilities that, that Peter works with in the cooperative area and the major investor-owned utilities really sharpen their game in terms of what they call mutual assistance. And that is when one utility has a problem, uh, there is a much more coordinated and rapid response effort to get resources, linemen, uh, new transformers, transmission equipment, substations even, you know, to the places where they're needed uh, to keep power on or restore power. So that, that's one thing that's really in, in favor of the industry being able to respond better when there is a crisis. The second thing, and this is something that Tantalus does, I believe, Peter, you, you devise technologies that allow the utility to talk to, actually talk to the lines and talk to the substations. There are sensors that are involved that uh, give a, a sort of a real-time look uh, by utilities into what's going on on their system. That didn't used to happen. They used to have to send guys out in trucks you know, to drive around and try to find a problem. Today, technology can solve a lot of those problems. I, I have to tell you a little story there. I used to live in a rural area of Virginia, which is very rapidly uh, uh, become an urban area, but uh, was rural when we first lived there. And we lost power one morning, and I called up the local uh, rural electric cooperative, it is actually, and said, we have no power. What's going on? They said, oh, we sent Bill over that way in this morning. Uh, he might have stopped for breakfast. Well, we've gone a long way from that to the kind of sophisticated systems that you install, Peter. Um, the speed of response is now enormously fast, but it's not a prophylactic. It does not prevent severe weather from taking down lines, fires from affecting electric supply. Um, what, are, what are the problems that you're, you're hearing about? What are people calling you up and saying, help us with this, the summer is coming? 
Sure. So, um, Llewellyn, we, we are getting, a, and, and to Rod's comments, we are getting in, um, a significant number of requests from our user community, which is, uh, which, which is about 260 utilities spread throughout the United States and, and sprinkles into Canada and the Caribbean Basin. Um, the, the primary areas of focus and requests that we're getting are how can we access the data from the devices in the field that we have connectivity to, the sensors and, and intelligent devices? Um, how can we help utilities pinpoint um, some, some equipment issues that can lead to contributing factors towards fire? Um, and, and the second is how can we help utilities pinpoint where people have purchased and installed electric vehicle chargers and electric to charge their electric vehicles at the home. Those are the two key areas of focus for utilities. And I can disaggregate down a little bit further on both as it relates to fire prevention um, or risk of fire. You know, we, we've come a significantly long way from um, your meter reader or technician that you just highlighted um, from, from one of your um, previous destinations, Llewellyn. Today, we, we can help utilities with anomalies that we detect in voltage and in current all the way down at the very edge of the grid. We, we are using artificial intelligence um, and an analytics engine to pinpoint where a feeder um, is at risk or compromised, where insulators have been chewed away either as a result of a squirrel or vegetation hitting lines. We've helped utilities pinpoint within their system plans where pole top transformers or distribution transformers are stressing um, with a level of visibility to then allow the utility proactively go out and check on those devices before they ultimately trip or even worse, explode or, or, or start to spark. Um, so there's a lot we can do from a data perspective um, that, that, that we, you know, the data that we accumulate from, from the edge of the grid meters or other sensors and devices that utilities are deploying today. On the EV charging infrastructure issue, you know, I, I, a significant area of focus, I know Llewellyn for you and me collectively, as, as an F-150 Lightning with a phase two charger shows up at someone's home, Right, that's the equivalent of adding six central air conditioning units, almost a 19 kilowatt hour pull on the system. And, and that maybe on an isolated circumstance doesn't disrupt too much in the distribution grid, but you add a second and a third and a fourth on a feeder or even a 10th and a 20th and a 30th at a circuit level, there's a cascading level of complications for the utility and the infrastructure and their system plan. So understanding when load profiles change, understanding the power quality that's being delivered. Those are all elements that utilities can start to really learn from on the basis of accumulating that data and then more importantly, analyzing that data. Daniel, several of the utilities I talk to are saying they're beginning to feel the effects of the supply chain disruption. And then the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, which is the trade association, uh, the central body uh, of the rural co-ops, of which there are 900, I might mention, an awful lot of them in the country, um, that there's a shortage of transformers. And for our viewers and for our listeners, a transformer is a device that either increases the voltage or decreases it, depending on what is needed, uh, 
what is going on? Is there a supply chain dimension to this problem of the summer supply? Yeah, I don't know how much it's contributing to the, the, the near-term issue of the summer supply. Certainly there are supply chain constraints all across the enterprise and those extend from, you know, uh, do we have enough line transformers if something were to fail, all the way out to trying to think about what are we going to need in terms of, you know, critical earth elements for, for batteries and for, um, you know, EV, uh, EVs going forward, those types of things. But I don't think, Llewellyn, it's, it's necessarily that's what's contributing to the near-term issue that we're having in the summer. I think it really comes down to previous risk assessment processes that really weren't looking towards the, the type of climate that we have and the changing resource mix and the, the transition that we're going through not being quite there yet in terms of ensuring that we have uh, resources available that provide the energy. For a long time, we were worried about do we have enough megawatts and capacity in those resources. And it's really not about capacity anymore. It's about energy. Do those resources that we have have enough energy behind them when you need them under the climate conditions that exist in order to be able to meet all of the electric demand that's there? Rod, what do you think of what Daniel has just said? Would you like to add to it? Well, well re reflecting both on Daniel and Peter's comments, um, I mean, my feeling about this uncertainty right now about electric supply this summer and going forward in other seasons of the year is, I think, based upon public policy choices and consumer choices that are being made, uh, and, and, the, and the latter are much harder to sort of uh, evaluate and quantify. And I mean, Peter mentioned the addition of you know one F-150 to maybe your, your garage. Let's say you might have two vehicles. Um, that's a lot of load, that's a lot of capacity that's being asked for from the utility uh, by a consumer. But if you think about this, there are now a lot of jurisdictions in the country that are shunning uh, the construction of any, any new buildings, commercial or residential, that include any natural gas hookups, which is it's, it's, it's called the move to electrification. And the utilities are pushing it because they want to be good citizens, they want to respond to Wall Street, and they want to help decarbonize uh, the, uh, their business. When they do that, there's no uniform reporting required around the country or within the various grid operators. So they know when a person or a company adds, say a company might add electric, uh, a fleet of electric delivery trucks or an individual an electric car or electric truck of their own, not to mention if they add an induction stove at replacing their, their natural gas fired stove, all of those appliances being, being loaded onto the system uh, in, an, in an uncatalogued way, uh, is, makes it really difficult for the grid operators to understand sort of how they're reshaping demand by their customer base. And the technologies that Daniel mentioned certainly can help do that, but, but a lot of it is it not up to technology solutions. It's up to sort of public policy direction to tell you know, somebody to inform you know, the utility or the co-op or the grid operator when additional electric, electric uh, using devices are added to the system. In other words, the shape of the load, and I rather like that way of explaining the electric load, the shape of it, you know, in the morning when everybody wakes up and puts on the lights and the air conditioning, it's this shape, and then maybe it goes down, maybe it goes up, and then at night it broadens out when everybody comes home. Um, how are your uh, utilities dealing with uh, what Rod has just said, Peter? To, to just provide some specific specificity on your question about supply chain constraints on transformers, um, utilities are sharing with us that they are now witnessing up to two year supply chain delays on transformers. 
And if you think about the historical model of utilities of running assets to failure in many circumstances, the behavior pattern inside the utility has to change when this, the lead times to order new transformers has changed so dramatically in such a short period of time. Um, and, and so we, we are witnessing that and we are seeing a number of utilities ask us to figure out how to do a better job of pinpointing um, the, the shape of their load profile and more importantly, the location of that shape of the load profile so that they can move assets around or protect the assets that they've got, particularly as it relates to transformers throughout the distribution grid. On, on Rod's comments, we see um, a new mandate emerging, and this is not only public powered co-op, but also investor owned utility. It's really an inflection point for utilities and it ties to this call to electrify everything. I'll set aside that electricity is now considered clean energy. Not long ago, that was not the case, but right, electrify everything while simultaneously being asked to decarbonize everything. From our perspective, that is an unfair and unrealistic request of the utility industry, absent changes in public policy, absent an acceleration and adoption of technology, and certainly preparing for a broader set of distributed generation within the utilities footprint. It can all come from centralized locations and wind farms and, and large solar farms, while beneficial long-term, not realistic to help short-term. And so we're seeing a lot of microgrid investment, smaller solar with backup storage, for resiliency purposes and being to having those resources deployed, localized in the distribution grid, all of which requires a lot of automation and, and digitization well and to prepare. Thank you. Uh, Daniel, you are involved in inventing for the utility industry. Is that a fair thing to say of the Electric Power Research Institute? We, we certainly develop and uh, demonstrate and deploy technology for sure, yeah. And how can you help in the current situation in this transition from uh, uh, traditional ways of making electricity to renewable resources and to new demands, which have been so late, well explained by both Rod and Peter? Yeah, so, so maybe I would start to just kind of building off of where Peter and Rod were at. You know, wh whether it's fair or not that the demands are, are being placed on uh, electric utilities. If we're going to, as a country, actually achieve net zero by mid-century, whatever year that ends up being, the electricity sector is absolutely going to be foundational to get there. If we're not using not just a clean electric supply by decarbonizing the, the electric sector itself, but that electric supply then has to be the primary foundation for, for decarbonizing the other non-electric end uses, transport, buildings, industry. Uh, and if you try, if, if the electric sector isn't that foundation, uh, it is much more expensive and, and much more difficult to get to uh, a net zero kind of future. So the electric supply is absolutely foundational. And this whole concept of reliability and resiliency, I, I hear often folks saying, well, reliability and resiliency, that, that's, a, uh, um, that's a barrier to getting to, to net zero or to decarbonized economy. And that's just not the case. The, the, the reliability and resiliency of the electric grid is the absolute prerequisite and foundation for getting there because if we're going to have our models show two to three more times of society's needs are going to be served from the electric sector in the future as they are today, 
that means two to three times more impact uh, if the electric supply is not there, if you have an outage. Uh, and if that's going to be the case, that's got to be absolutely rock solid, reliable, and resilient, even more so than today, or your risk goes up. And Rod, the grid, we talk about the grid as though it is uh, the absolute necessary backbone and that there's no alternative. Are there alternatives? Are microgrids, for example, which we hear a lot about, and people like the sound of it without fully understanding what they are, are they an alternative to the traditional grid, to this great central nervous system that is the grid? No, I, I mean, in my opinion, not really. I mean, they're, they're useful for uh, a college campus, for example, or maybe for a large corporate campus. However, I mean, the, the North American electric grid is the largest machine ever built by man. It's an amazing piece of engineering, particularly because it was not planned out very well. And some parts are, are almost brand new. and Some parts are a century old. What it manages to, to sort of cobble together a reliable supply of power, unlike any other country in the world, except for maybe Canada to our north. So, um, I mean, the grid is is an organic thing and it keeps it keeps growing and adapting to the needs of its survival and its survival is based upon the demand of its customers and the owners of the grid. Uh, the problem comes now when you don't have enough technology in place to support what the grid would like to be able to do, which is use less fossil fuel uh, electricity and provide uh, a level of technologies that aren't quite ready yet, uh, battery technologies, hydrogen technologies to help supplant the use of natural gas, uh, small modular nuclear reactors that have been talked about for a decade or more, and there's not one yet to be built and, and successfully proven to work. Um, so we're kind of stuck with, old, with pretty old solutions, which right now means relying on a lot of natural gas. And um, that's making electricity more expensive because as, as, as you could not fail to notice, because particularly what's going on uh, in, in Europe with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we're shipping 75% of our LNG exports are going to Europe now, and that's going to continue to increase. As a result of that, there's less gas to be used at home by residential customers and by industrial customers, and that's contributing to inflation on the industrial side. Um, and there's certain supply chain issues as well, because the less natural gas that's available, it, uh, it, it, it adversely affects the ability of manufacturers to use gas as a feedstock to make chemicals and fertilizer and those costs then go up. So right now what's going on in the power sector and in the commodities sector towards natural gas are really harming uh, the American economy, but there's really no alternative to it because I don't think you can rely upon solar panels on everyone's roof uh, and you can't rely on microgrids. You need to have a robust, reliable backbone grid of these high, high capacity transmission lines that can um, actually help help save uh, the grid when it goes down in one area of the country. I mean, it's, it's very common. It happens every day, in fact, that there's a more of a need for power, say, in Pennsylvania uh, than there is in Illinois. The grid operator that controls Illinois' power flow can send power to Pennsylvania. And, and this happens in small degrees every day. What we're worried about this summer, uh, what we've been talking about is whether that happens on a very large scale and there's not enough power to send anywhere. Thank you, all three of you, very much indeed. I do hope that the lights stay on for all of us because it'll be terribly hot otherwise and I shall have to stop wearing my tie, which I would really hate. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.